0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, having walked those long and lonely stairs for 400 times, it's Jonathan Stratton and Gary K. Wolf on the Cood Street Podcast!
1: It's lonely here on the Cood Street Motel 6. There is <laughs> nobody on the streets. The, the, the rain. <laughs> That's right. Just,
0: Kudzu just, rolling down the street. It, and it, exactly. You are up in the Gershwin room, socially distanced, sipping Manhattan, staring down the long bar like some sad re- restaging of Nighthawks at the diner. Um,
1: well, there, that's one of the memes that's going around now is very, variations on Edward Hopper's Nighthawks with, with nobody in it or, but the odd thing is the original painting, which by the way is here in Chicago at the Art Institute is a perfect example of social distancing. There are three people in an empty <laughs> diner in the middle of the night. And they're at least six feet apart from each other.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, and and look, let's face it, this podcast has for nearly, because we're about a week away from it, nearly for ten years been socially distanced. That's absolutely true. We've talked to people all over the world. We're, we're, we're just in our, in our natural element here, aren't we? We are social distance kings. If you think the average episode of Coot Street is recorded, four thousand or eight thousand kilometers apart you couldn't be more socially distanced
1: we're doing the responsible thing well we also have in addition to our upcoming anniversary the actual number of podcasts which we can claim whatever it is because nobody else knows uh we could say we've done 1500 podcasts (laughs) but in fact we
0: are right around 400 right around now i think so well this this when this comes out, this will be released as episode four hundred, but there right. are a bunch of like other episodes around. There is probably a dozen or so roundtable episodes that don't count as Cood Street. There's probably right. another three, four, or five things we used to do, like Australia Day. You know, Christmas podcasts and things. Boxing day, boxing day podcasts right now. So sure somewhere that. in the space of 400, 420 episodes, allowing of course, as you said quite rightly earlier today, the colossal cheat, the numer- numerical cheat of the 10 minutes with series, which is, you know, 30 something episodes long now and has just boosted us right back on schedule.
1: Which is entirely fine. I have, my, myself, I, I have found myself listening to more of our podcasts since we started doing the 10-minute ones because I can walk around the block and I'm done. I I, (laughs) I confess, not being a good podcast listener, um, I will listen to fragments of ours, fragments of other people's, but at some point I, I have other things to do. And 10 minutes is like about right. I mean, if all readings, I don't want to insult any of our writer friends, but if all readings at all conventions, should there ever again be conventions, were 10 to 15 minutes long, which they're usually supposed to be, I'd be fine. So <laughs> people, people who, here, here is my new novella.
0: I will see you at dinner at 8. <laughs> uh, that kind of reading, really nice. Yes, I've carefully chosen this thing. And, and you listen and you're going, that was your careful choice. Uh-huh. Interesting. So tell me, okay, we've been doing this. We never intended for it to go for 10 years. Mm-mm. We barely intended it to go till next week the decision to record weekly was entirely spontaneously stupidly written in a episode description rather than anything else and then we were kind of mostly weekly for a chunk of time i think our best year we got about 46 or 48 episodes out which was mm-hmm. pretty good really and now here we are looking back what's your feeling on it you know i mean what do you what do you feel about the code street experience i love it I've had I've had a great
1: time. We've had a lot of uh, time talking to people that um I hadn't had a chance to meet before. Uh there are people I feel like feel comfortable with now that I don't think I've ever met. For example, uh he's been on a couple of times, delightful guest was Joe Abercrombie.
0: I don't think I've ever met Joe in person. Okay. I've I've met Joe a couple of times because he's been here uh-huh. in Perth yeah. on tour and stuff. And so we've had drinks a few times. But yeah, I've had something similar and uh I probably Probably the most surprising experience for me and maybe for listeners generally would be the Ursula Le Guin episode where we were talking Mm -hmm. about the Margaret Atwood book on science fiction. And I don't think anyone was read, well, unless you knew her already, you weren't ready for her to be just as centered and real and funny and great company as she was, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a revelation, uh and and a pleasure and i have to say just being able to have a dialogue as messy and tangled and ill prepared as it has been has been a pleasure
1: yeah and i think that uh, to be honest we should be grateful to all our guests for putting up with our utter lack of preparation and and unprofessionalism in a lot of this but ursula who i had i'd known for some time off and on uh, because she she obviously knew our friend Charles Brown well. Uh, I, I wasn't surprised at how delightful she was, but I'm always surprised at how uh, much of a defender of the fantastic she is. I mean, that's the reason she uh, wanted to do the podcast, was because she, there were things in Margaret Atwood's book that she felt were wrong, yeah. or, or unearned, as she said. And And she was very open about that. They maintained their friendship, but... You're mentioning that episode brings up another issue that um, is sad. When I looked I looked over the list, I printed out a list. Maybe we'll put it on Facebook of all the guests we've had over yep. the last 10 years. And to look at the ones, one of the best guests of all was Graham Joyce. Yes. Um, we've lost Graham Joyce. We've lost David Hartwell
0: was a guest. Uh, Gene, Gene Wolfe, Wolf, Ursula Le Guin, Harlan Ellison. And right. on, I mean, I would have to go through the whole list in front. I don't have it sitting in front of me, but we have sadly lost too many friends over the but ten the side, years.
1: The other, the other side of that is, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk to the one we did.
0: Yes, um, and and I think one of the bittersweet edges to it is that there are people that I, I kind of wish we had spoken to, that we probably could have spoken to, who mm-hmm. are no longer here. We didn't speak to Jack Vance. No, And I think that could have been very interesting. Um, we didn't speak to Frederick Pohl. And I think the same thing is probably true. That would have been easy to do too. And there are others. So it, it sits as a warning as we move into whatever the next period of this is. Or not a warning, as 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 a note to kind of be sure to reach out. I mean, I think one thing I've become aware of, and I feel you have too, is not wanting to do uh, t- just a two old white guys talking podcast. I mean, it's, it's a joke, uh, that links it to, um, the Muppets and Waldorf and Statler and all that kind of there thing. There is that. There and is that's that. a good spirited joke and that's fine. But you're hoping you're talking to younger people, newer writers, introducing different people, talking about things. Along with that, you don't want to overlook those voices that have been around a long time, you know? Well, I think that's one of the questions that, um, that we face
1: every week in deciding what we're going to talk about.
0: Uh, deciding, deciding, deciding yeah.
1: what we're doing as, as we speak You're right funny now. Funny man, funny man. But no, there is a sense of uh, on the one hand, I think I think we're both self conscious at being well. I was going to say middle aged white males, but that only counts for you anymore. Uh, <laughs> the, the creaking elder, but, but but so there are people I've known for decades, and I yeah. do think it's important to talk to. Um, uh to, to the leguins or to the joe Haldemans, to the robert yes. silverbergs of, of, of the world at the same time we want to talk to younger writers because i want to meet the younger writers i want to and some of them um who are doing really interesting things so there's that balance now the question is uh, uh do you think over the years between trying to talk to kind of classic writers and i think we have every right to have some pride in having talked to Jean Wolf and Ursula Le Guin and Harlan Ellison and so forth. And looking at the newer writers, uh, we've certainly uh, had a lot of fun with kids Johnson and Sophia Samatar and Nadia Corofor and so forth and so on. I wonder, are we leaving out the middle ground? Are there those writers who aren't really new writers anymore and they aren't kind of classic
0: old writers yet? I'm sure there are. And what's more, I will go further. I think there's a wide-ranging blind spot in all kinds of different places. Mm-hmm. I think we've barely scratched the surface that we, the, of the people we could talk to. How could we have gone 10 years and not spoken to CJ Cherry?
1: I know. I don't know how that worked out. You know,
0: I mean, I, I look at that and I'm kind of horrified. I know the only reason that we don't talk to Joe Walton every third week is because she doesn't really do podcast-y Skype kind of things and you need to be in the same space to talk to her in person. No, that's true. Um, well, and sometimes we have been able to take advantage of that when you go to a convention, for yeah. example. I mean,
1: one of the people we were able to get, uh, on one podcast was Pamela Sargent, mm-hmm. um, and that's the, – the whole kind of history of, 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 of women in science fiction was there with her before Lisa Yasek, but we've also had Lisa on talking about this sort of thing. So I guess um, it's impossible to cover the field in any kind of an, an overall balanced way. It seems to me your, your selection of guests on any podcast is going to reflect your own biases, So I've looked at our list of guests and tried to figure out what our biases are. And I don't think we're
0: well-organized enough to have clear (laughs) bias. I think we have lacks of focus. Maybe that's it. You know, I think that's absolutely true. I think our, um, our list of people we talk to is all over the place. I think... It could always involve newer writers and more diverse voices. And mm-hmm. I would bet that if you looked chronologically that over the last five years, those voices have become more diverse. And I think that should continue to be the case and should be expanded on as much as we can. I think that the 10-minute episodes actually are a good avenue to begin to broaden who we talk to. I think that's true. Um, I think sometimes... The full hour long episodes that we do require a certain level of depth of discussion that maybe we're not ready for simply because we don't know someone's interests. We haven't necessarily read all their books yet. And if you're not going to just interview someone about their book and we tend to try to avoid that, right. then you need to know what their interests are. So as you know, what you can talk to them about, you know, half of when these things have worked out, uh, it's been because you know the people already, so you know you can blend them in conversation. Right. You know? uh, so that works. You know, that so-and-so is interested in this, so-and-so is interested in that too. They have a different point of view. That's an interesting discussion. Let's go. Uh Whereas when you... Unless you've had a chance to talk to Kate Elliott and Elliot de Bodard, you don't know they talk interestingly about mm. such something together. And then you think, well, that's a, a conversation I want to bring in. And yeah. th- also the harder thing, I guess... To talk – since this episode's is going to be about behind the closed – what happens behind doors, I guess, is getting some sense of who is comfortable speaking. There are people who, frankly, are less comfortable speaking at length in a podcast kind of environment on subjects. And so they're either more to draw out or uh-huh. you're better off having some other way to talk to them. So that's a factor, to what they're comfortable with and everything else. There's all kinds of people I still want to talk to. We haven't spoken to Fonda Lee, really. I don't right. think. We haven't spoken to Dave Hutchinson. How have we not spoken to David Hutchinson? You know, uh, and I also have this idea for some other things we could do, which maybe we'll talk about off this Well, because- I, think, I think the other thing that has to alter our planning and I, I, I love
1: the 10 minute episodes myself. I've, mean, I'd never, I, I did, I had not met Todd A. Thompson. I had clearly going to have no chance of meeting him this year. It was, and, and I felt by the way, he was, really being uh, generous to give away his time because he had come off a shift at the hospital was exhausted was going on another shift um and and yet i felt like there was a connection there um so i think so what, part of the planning we've always done aware of the fact that there are some people who are not comfortable uh online or on skype or, or even there may be uh, issues of hearing in some cases so we try to schedule things at um uh, At conventions, we're not going to do that this year.
0: So we have to figure out how to do things. I think Uh, so. And I think, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to take a little bit of a breath and go, who who haven't we spoken to? How mm -hmm. is it that we managed to overlook, you know, something, you know? Uh, And do we want to? Because one of the things I think we both feel is that this is a particular time and Uh we want to encourage people to keep working we want to try to connect readers with books because that's both what we do anyway and it's our interest and it's our passion you know Mm -hmm. so when you know that so and so has i mean there are people who have have books coming out in april may june july august who are genuinely very worried about how they'll perform and they're worried as they should be and so then there's that whole question of well how, how what what can you do you know and obviously, the one thing we can do is we can bring the thousand or so people who apparently, according to downloads, listen to this podcast and thank you each and every single one of you for doing so. Um Bring bring them along to say, hey, well, Cory Doctorow has a new book out. Kate Elliott mm. has a new book out. Um, Have you read Alex E. Harrow yet? Because, Lord God, her work is good. You should read her. <laughs> and so on and so forth, you know. And you also i mean yeah it, it's keeping in that conversation and i think right now it's harder to do that you know i think it is uh, i mean, i think we, we i mean it is probably more important now
1: than at any time in the 10 years we've been doing this that uh, that writers need some signal boosts uh even though that's never been our purpose and we've you know we've talked to uh, various agents and publicists no we're not we're not here to promote specific books but if there's a new book obviously we're going to talk about it um And I think that becomes very important, and it's important for us to learn about that. I think the other thing, looking at – as a matter of fact, here's a piece of trivia for everybody, and you might be the only one who will know the answer. Who was the first guest on this podcast
0: 10 years ago? My recollection is it was Amelia Beamer. You're absolutely correct. So hello, so hello Amelia. to Amelia Beamer uh, if you're listening out there today.
1: Thank you, Amelia, for having been our first guest. But there, uh, she was a colleague at, 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 at Locus, of course. But her, she also had a first novel. So the very first thing we did when we had a guest was to give a signal boost to, um, to the Loving Dead. But the other thing, when I'm looking over our past uh, episodes, that as th- there are advantages to our lack of planning, there are things we discovered during a discussion of an episode that um, I couldn't have anticipated. One of the more fascinating episodes to me was an episode in which Steve Erickson and Glenn Cook were on together, and and Glenn Cook is another one of those. I'm glad we got him, uh, uh, but I didn't have any idea of what his relationship to Fritz Lieber was until he started telling us about it. We always meant to go back and talk to him again, didn't we? We did. We wanted to find out more about this stuff, but we not just should. about. We, 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 well, there. There are so many podcasts that have left me with a sense, I really want to take this person out to have a drink now, and then I realize, well no, that person is a couple of thousand miles away and it's not going to happen. And then by the time you're at the next convention, you see that person, the moment is passed but nevertheless, but but nevertheless, I mean, we've had some uh, uh, I think important discoveries, important revelations. I know this sounds like memory lane, but there was. An episode with uh, the only one we've done so far with KJ Parker, who has consistently produced more and more interesting things. Um, there's a KJ Parker story in your dragon's book, which I just read last night. As a matter of fact, there is. And we, I'm fairly certain we were the first podcast to feature KJ Parker after he had revealed himself to be Tom Holt.
0: That's right. And I'm, I also read Tom Holt's books as well. Mm -hmm. And they continue to be witty and smart and funny and brilliant in the same way that they were you know the management of the management style of supreme beings was great and Mm. you know he is an interesting person it's just time you know so i mean and i have to say the 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 10 minutes with things have made it easier to talk to a variety of people just for technical reasons well that's true that's true yeah you know uh, and actually, I will say one of the pleasures for me in the 10 minutes with is I, I get to listen to you have a conversation.
1: And I get to listen to your conversations, too. And I confess that I've listened to more of them now than I have of our of our, our usual podcasts. But it also is a sense of getting to meet people. It, I, I think we're really advertising our own 10-minute podcasts. But it's like hanging out in a bar, and somebody is there who's really interesting for ten minutes, and then one of you has to get to a panel or to a dinner or something. It has a feel of being at a convention and informally getting to know people um, that you know that, that you might not other, uh, otherwise have met. Um, and the other thing I've noticed about that's changed over the years with these ten minute conversations. Uh, we were I was I was in contact with a writer today who doesn't know how to do Skype and may not do it. But the, the, the technical problems we had 10 years ago, people who simply, we were making, we were doing podcasts over landline phones, uh, with, with some people. And now almost everybody, uh, that you know has some familiarity, at least with, uh, with online communications, with Skype and with Zoom and wh- whatever.
0: In, in, in April of 2020, Gary, most people are setting up movie studios in their spare room.
1: Right, exactly. You
0: know, so, uh, it's almost more surprising that people aren't set up for it uh, than than that they are. In fact, it, it, one of the more unexpected conversations you now have is exactly which platform will you be using because I'm on Zoom and I'm on Skype and I'm on Teams and I'm on this and all that kind of thing. So it's all a bit like that. But, you know, it's nice to be able to do it. And some, you know, some of the conversations are joyful and they all point towards newer, you know, the next generation of conversations. And I mm-hmm. guess... You know, there's an interim point. I mean, I, I don't know that I... Well, no. I know exactly what the original inspiration for this podcast was because it was a, an inspiration that I carried with me for three years, uh-huh. which was to do an episode, a podcast once a month with Charles going Brown, going over the latest issue of Locus as it came out. To sit there with the issue going, oh, look what's in the issue and mm-hmm. talk about it. And then expand upon it a little bit, maybe that kind of thing. And for Correct. various reasons that didn't happen and then it segued into these conversations and to some degree I've although it's never been analyzed by either of us I suppose it's about having the podcast is about having a relationship with science fiction and the field that's the purpose that that, that's what it is well I think on more than most other fields I mean we've made
1: jokes about how many awards science fiction gives itself and and so forth and so on but it seems to me that the, the, by science fiction we're talking about the whole global fantastic, of uh, science fiction fantasy horror meta whatever. But I think it's 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 a it's a collection of genres that moves forward by means of conversations and exchanges of ideas more than most do. Um, I mean, it seems to me that. I know, I've know i known a handful of mystery writers, and they're all delightful people. And they, uh, they, they'll talk a little bit about issues of point of view, but they don't worry about the mystery field, the way science fiction writers and critics and editors worry about the science fiction field. They'll worry about contracts drying up or they'll worry about their publisher being bought out by a conglomerate. But I think the kind of uh, currency of this field, even though it sounds like a cliche because people have been saying it for 70 years, is ideas. And if you take away the capacity for exchanging ideas, which originally were exchanged in fanzines, now are exchanged in podcasts. Well, there were fanzines, then there was um, that online discussion board. What was Genie? The the Genie discussion board back in the 80s. And now there are podcasts like ours and uh, Twitter and so forth and so on. But I get the sense, especially since the lockdown, that uh, people are trying to make up for the for the knowledge that they're not going to see each other for another year.
0: Well, look, I think that's true. Certainly my communication in the last four weeks, and it really is four weeks, which is kind of mm. shocking because it feels like we're 700 years into this. I know, I know. has been doing the, exactly this. I I Skype people. Uh, yeah. I have S- Skype groups. I, I have people now talking about regular Skype get-togethers as a social alter- alternative. You know, I was talking to Jack Dan yesterday
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we will skype short uh in the next couple of days the day before that i was talking with sean williams simon brown garrett garth nix and james bradley all in a collective podcast a uh, cool. skype discussion from south africa and sydney and melbourne and adelaide mm-hmm. uh, because we can't physically get together and there are other friends from various places obviously i was well, not obviously, I was talking to Kate Elliott mm. half an hour ago, and she's in Hawaii on the top of a hillside somewhere. And, you know, there are people all over the place, and yet suddenly they're there, and you can see them and talk to them, and it feels kind of some sort of substitute for the fact that there aren't any conventions going to happen this year, Gary. No, there aren't. and this Everybody's is, uh... out there kidding themselves that October and November is going to happen. But it's not. The, the convention it's year is to, over it, already.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. And even if conventions decide to continue, it's, it's the same thing that's going on in the States here now with a couple of. Georgia has opened up bowling alleys and tattoo parlors for some bizarre reason. Of course, it's led to a whole Twitter meme about can you actually give tattoos using blow darts? Um, but apart from that, there's the question of um, whether or not people would go. If conventions happened again, I mean, what was happening? But well, the the one convention that began collapsing in real time for me, because day after was was, was ICFa, which was supposed to be in mid March, and what? Uh, well, our our good friend Ellen Clagis and I were on the phone together, saying, watching all of our friends drop off, and at a certain point, you reach a, a a decision that you're going out of sheer guilt that you want to support the conference. There won't be very many people to talk to. And I think we were grateful, I felt enormously grateful to ICFA when it decided to cancel, when ReaderCon decided to cancel this year, when New Zealand decided to cancel, because it saved us all making a really painful decision.
0: Yeah. And look, and I, I kind of expect, and I know they haven't, and I want to be clear to listeners, as of this point, which is the 26th of April, when we're recording, mm-hmm. uh, to my knowledge, the Salt Lake City World Fantasy Convention hopes to go ahead. Yes. But I would be surprised if it does. And, and if you it know, does,
1: I would, yeah, yeah, I would be surprised if it had much in the way of attendance, frankly.
0: And I live in a place where they're not going to let anybody travel internationally till sometime next year. So um, I probably, I probably couldn't get on a plane before about February. Oh, no, that's interesting. Yeah. Our borders um, are shut. I haven't even I don't think our borders are shut,
1: but uh, with our president day to day, minute to minute, who knows? One of the uh, ways
0: they've controlled the coronavirus here or its spread is first of all, they've, they have divided the states up into, into basically regional bubbles. So hmm. we, ca- I, my, this, this, the city area that I live in is one bubble. I, we can't go out into regions of the state without uh-huh. actually going through police barricades on the major highways really? and right. having to have papers to allow us through. You cannot enter or leave the state via – there are only like two roads that come into and out of Western Australia anyway or something, maybe three. They're blocked. Mm. You can't come in through the cross-state borders or through the ports or through the airports. And Australia itself is blocked. And the only stuff that's happening now is freight and um, family kind of reunions. I mean, you have to allow citizens to re-enter the country. That's – Goes mm-hmm. without saying, but those people are put into hotels in isolation for 12 right. days before they're allowed to return home. Unless you're rich, Gary, don't get me started on rich people who can get around things. But anyway, but everybody else, that's what happens. And if I wanted to leave, I guess I could, I could probably find a flight that, but I would have to go somewhere, in quarantine and then turn around, come back in quarantine, so it's exactly. very cumbersome. So you're, talking, you're, yeah. you're talking about a month of not doing anything at either
1: end, basically, if you add the two-week periods together.
0: Absolutely, um, yes. My, my six-week trip to New York would be two weeks long. or well, Yeah, a week yeah two, exactly. Yeah, yeah, whatever it
1: is, yeah. Well, one, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about asking you for on tonight's anniversary podcast was the question, it's a question which no longer seems to have any meaning at all. And that was going to be, how much has the field changed since we started doing this 10 years ago? And immediately when I thought about asking that question, it occurred to me, probably the field has changed more in the last eight weeks than it had in the preceding 10
0: years. It's very hard to say if that's true because we lose perspective. Um, you know, I don't know that I'm well enough informed to give you a, a Patrick Nielsen Hayden managing editor at Tor kind of answer, but mm-hmm. book distribution has changed. Uh, the number of chain bookstores around the United States and elsewhere has changed dramatically so the number of physical right. outlets to sell books has changed The last ten years has been the real rise of the audiobook, the real rise of the ebook mm-hmm. you know we've seen collapses and mergers of publishers at the same time as we see mergers of enormous media companies and whatever else so suddenly you have you know you know, penguin random house something 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 as opposed to you know actual discrete publishing so in terms of the insides of the publishing business i think it's a lot different than it was 10 years ago anyway i don't think i'd say it's actually radically changed in this four weeks it may have though when we come back you know because it's like when things reopen it's like those 600 barnes and nobles you know i've talked about this on the podcast before there's six or so hundred that have shot some, including one, the one right near you, are never going to reopen. Are not going to reopen at all. Some indie bookstores will tragically go away. Some will you know, persevere. I mean, I was very encouraged to hear that Powell's were reopening and rehiring people, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the broad scale change to publishers. Some some will fold. Smaller publishers will fold, which is very sad. Uh, imprints will be merged. Editors will lose their jobs the way people behave will change. We are doing things digitally and we're having to develop and learn how to use infrastructure. I mean, we've been talking about using zoom and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Generally, we're going to be using, we're using infrastructure that we weren't using the same way six weeks ago. And we're not going to change back. You know, uh, we have had private conversations about the way that publishers produce and market books. Mm-hmm. about how they produce advanced reader copies that are read by bookstore people and by reviewers and critics, and they help the marketing cycle. But that's an expense. It's a real expense for publishers. And they've had to do it, but there's a digital alternative. Right. And they're now going to... You know, they are quite understandably saying, we need to use the digital alternative now. And then there's a question, well, do they actually go back? Do they turn around and say, we're now going to resume the analog version of this? The answer is probably not. It probably Probably won't go back. So then all those things have to change. And that's a small first world problem, but it's an example of ways things are going to change.
1: Well, it can be a serious problem to someone who has their first novel coming out sometime Mm -hmm. this year. Uh, The cycle of the year is disrupted. It's not just disrupted in terms of the publishing industry, Mm -hmm. in terms of broadway plays in terms of movies and so forth the big summer blockbusters whether they're books or uh, or movies aren't happening that's it's uh and, and and so things are getting pushed back i mean one of the problems and this is a, a technical i guess behind the scenes problem that might not interest most people but as a reviewer and you as a reviews editor nobody really knows when books are coming out now
0: they're being pushed
1: back. There was a Well, book yeah, I
0: I re- there are some. There are some. I mean, there's not as many as we think. I know mm. that Tor, for example, Tor Books, who I work with, had to reschedule a number of books because one of their printers went out of business. Oh, okay. And so they had to reschedule that one third of their total, uh, li- lineup so that it could be printed by the other, you know, by the other two printers mm. so that they would still be able to put those books out. And so that's what actually impacted a book like Harrow the Ninth, which is the Tamsin, your sequel to Gideon the Ninth. It wasn't right. coronavirus affecting them wanting to lay it for better sales. It was literally the printing window wasn't available to get it printed. So there's that sort of thing happening. Mm-hmm. And also then there's the trucking and book selling and all of that kind of stuff which is disrupted, some of which okay. will normalize, some of which won't. And it is a—you're right. No one—it's a challenge. Sometimes you have to sit there and go, "I was going to review this April book in April, uh, and now I've missed the window, or I now have to consider: am I going to hold this review for the August release date, or am I going to put it out right. now?" An and frankly, most places are just going ahead. You know, I've had a couple of very good reviews for my book, uh, *The Book of Dragons*, uh-huh. but it's coming out in July, right? So a starred review from PW in March. That was always coming out in July, so but well but yeah. that's what but
1: that's what p w has always
0: done yeah yeah so you know
1: uh, congratulations th- 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 on that by the
0: way thank you very much uh, but there is a an element of having to adjust a bit uh, yeah. the people who are much more substantially impacted though I mean you're right the first novelists, the novelists the you know, anybody with any kind of book coming out you look at say mm-hmm. John Scalzi, right uh, last week his book The Last Emperor came out and The Last Emperor concludes his trilogy and they had no idea how it would sell and he's been his entire book tour was cancelled he had to do it all online, on Reddit and mm. all this other kind of stuff and Instagram and it became a New York Times bestseller but even now it's kind of a little bit and I don't say this disrespectfully to John it's a bit of a New York Times bestseller with an asterisk against it because it's New York Times bestseller in the time of pandemic so, is it set, you know, does a top five book on the New York Times bestseller list sell as many copies in April 2020 right. as it sold in April 2019? I genuinely don't know. Uh, I'm delighted for John that the book is on the New York Times bestseller list, but you sit there kind of going, "Well, there's that," you know. So there's all this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and
1: I guess what I was suggesting is uh, the, the the radical changes of the last few weeks are not going to be permanent, but no one knows what. What the return is going to look like. Some will,
0: some will, that's the thing. Uh, that's that thing, it's like, you know, like this one, if if there are ten things, three of them will be uh, permanent and they will flow on in some other way. And yes, in ten years time, you'll have, it'll have disappeared as an impact and we'll be in some new environment. But nonetheless, there's all that level of change. And there's all these places that need support, you know, frankly. You know, the obvious one for you and I to talk about, and it does grow out of the evolution of this podcast, is Locus. Locus has been around for 50 years. It's been providing news and reviews, both in the magazine and online. You pay for it or free. And it's been an enormous service to the community. But nonetheless, you know, it's had an enormous, taken an enormous blow because of the current times. Uh, advertising has changed they lost a large chunk right. of their distribution so their print right their 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 marketing their sales dropped by half in, in in a short period of time and so they need support so i mean we would say i would say here now go to locusmagcom slash donate and if you can make a tax deductible d- 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 uh, donation a dollar ten dollars whatever you can or nothing if you can't or go to locusmagcom slash subscribe and Buy an mm-hmm. issue, buy a subscription, gift a subscription, whatever you want to do, or don't. But I many they could really do with your help right now, and I don't say that out of self-interest. But so could so many other places. So and could fact- so many other places. True. Uh, but our but you know our
1: interest is in uh, promoting the discussion of science fiction, and Locus has been close to the center of that discussion for decades. So I mean, I, mean, I owe a lot to it. I think you feel that Very you owe a lot enormously to it as well. well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and, and and I I do think we have to give. Uh, as we've done before in this podcast, enormous amounts of credit to, uh, to Liza and to the staff that, that I, a lot of people simply didn't believe would
0: keep the magazine alive for even five years, let alone for 10. It's remarkable that Liza Tromby has kept, has been able to lead Locus forward for 10 or 11 years now. Um, I don't think that really in 2009, we thought that would have been Likely or possible. No. And yet, with a lot of hard work and innovation, Liza's managed to, with the team, with Tim and, uh, with Tim Pratt and with, uh, Arlie Sorg Lovely. and with Carol- Carolyn Cushman and with, um, Fran and everybody else has, uh, Kristen Gongwong and the whole rest of the team, I'm sure I'm missing people, I know, and I apologize, has done a remarkable job in keeping it going. It's going to be, going to be difficult. In fact, to me, I was going to say the great challenge, one of the great challenges in our position is I want to support everybody. I mean, you talked about supporting first novelists and I agree a hundred percent, but I want to support everybody. I want to make sure that come a year and a half from now, PS publishing and subterranean and, you know, uh, Cemetery Dance and Centipede and, uh, Tachyon and all of the other publishers who too many to name are still Mm -hmm. there. And that Clark's World still exists, and Lightspeed still exists, and Strange Horizons still exists, and all, all the other magazines who produce great fiction. And I'm as invested in The Last Emperor by John Scalzi being a bestseller
1: mm-hmm. as
0: I am in the fact that, I you know, that Paul McCauley has wore the maps out, or that, you know... Jonathan Carroll has a novel to find a home for in the United States and so on and so on. There's all this, this stuff, all these people who you want to support. So that's kind of what we're trying try to do. I mean, that, that's the, if you like, to me, the pivot for what we're doing right now and what we're pivoting with 10 minutes with mm-hmm. is, is doing that, trying to support it as well. Whilst ha- also, ha- frankly, having fun.
1: Having fun, I think, is a, the one thing we can, uh, try to do without guilt. I mean, uh, you, you and I come from, Frankly, privileged positions. I mean, you have a job. I have, I have a retirement account which is thirty-five to forty percent less than what it was a month ago, but it's still there. Um, and, and and so I think one of the issues that that, that does come up, especially with um, writers that are trying to make a living, freelancer or, or, or some of our friends who are both writers and college professors, suddenly turning their classes entirely online overnight with ma- and and all and, and having. Kids at home and having working at home and having all this stuff happening at the same time is just appalling. You want to be able to support everybody. Um, and, and and the problem is that a lot of the people who would like to support Locus or independent publishers or
0: various authors, Patreons, are themselves in dire straits. It's very, very true. I mean I also am painfully aware that people, that writers, editors and others who – who supplement their income or spend their time running workshops, going to festivals, mm. going to public events of all sorts of, you know, are not able to do and that do that, and it has an enormous impact on their income as well as on their profile yeah. for for the, the book projects that they have coming out. I am painfully aware that my dear friend James Bradley has a new novel, Ghost Species, due out any two seconds. Yeah, and he would normally go to. A Sydney Writers Festival, a Melbourne Writers Festival, all of which right. comes with appearance fees and all that kind of thing, and that won't happen now. And there's this marvelous book which is yet to find an American publisher, which is very concerning to me. And you know how you f- you, you connect that book up with the audience, and you know mm-hmm. what I really genuinely hope Coode Street listeners do beyond going to Apple, uh, Apple, your favorite podcast place, and rate, rate, giving us a rating. <laughs> um <laughs> is, uh, taking the time to both find these books and then amplify what we're saying to other people. You know, amplify that reach. If, if you read something, it's like, to me, the best example I have seen on Cood Street period in 10 years of word of mouth are the Sean Duffy, Adrian McKinty novels right, in exactly. the past eight weeks, you know. James Bradley mentions them to me over coffee in West Perth on his way back from the Christmas, uh, the Cocos Islands. Right. I read them. I mention them to so and so. They go on and suddenly Ellen Clages is reading them. Somebody else is reading them. Friends in the, uh, on the pod, you know, around the podcast space are reading them and they're fi- finding a literature They're already successful. That's not really the point. It's just that. You're seeing that ampli- amplification, and I'm hoping that will continue for a lot of the books that we have read, are reading, as well as ones we're working on, frankly. Well, I mean, one of the things
1: that has fascinated me in listening uh, to some of our 10-minute podcasts is that uh, a, a lot of pe- obvi- for obvious reasons, a lot of people are talking about Sarah Pinsker's novel because it's just downright creepy uh, as to how much she she got right, even though she were terrorists into the mix. I heard you, you you were talking to Jeff Ford. Jeff Ford was talking about the Alex Harrow novel. So there there, there was a kind of uh mutual um uh, uh promotion I guess that goes around among this And I think I think it, it it's interesting to me not just to find uh the Adrian McKenty um novels but the uh the things that nobody else is reading. I mean, uh you know, Gwyneth Jones is reading the autobiography of George Sand, which is a book that I guess I was vaguely aware would have been out there somewhere, but I don't think I've ever. And, and now I'm curious about it. Um, I to this day, even though we did ten minutes with um, with Andy Duncan, I to this day don't know why he's reading Lenny Bruce's
0: autobiography. <laughs> well, just because he's interested in comedians and stand-up comedy. Gary. I guess so. Um, you know, and yes, you're you're right. I'm I'm intrigued at the idea that Joe Hill. Is sitting somewhere in outside Boston or somewhere I think it might be with Julian Redfern and is reading was it uh, the um, what's name the Anthony Bourdain cook uh, cooking book yeah uh, to, know, to, to one another and that kind of thing and you go oh and then that sort of you know well that and what, actually what I love about it right? well one thing I love about those discussions is they round out the picture we have of who we all are whether we are Fans, readers, writers, editors, publishers, or whoever, that this field, science fiction, fantasy, horror, speculative fiction, is part of something else as well. And that these other things nourish it rather than being competing with it in a creative sense. You know, that romance novels are as important as cookbooks are as important as Alexander the Great, uh, biographies of Alexander the Great. They all feed into this space as well.
1: I think the other uh, uh, misunderstanding, misconception, which uh, which these – I mean we're, we're really promoting ourselves here, aren't we? But these podcasts help to clear up. When we ask people what they're reading, I think sometimes uh, fans and even younger writers assume that writers obsessively read the competition to outdo them. And it, it's, it's clear that writers read whatever they want to read. It's not necessarily in the field. I'm sure you've had the same reaction that I've had in inviting somebody to do one of these short podcasts. And they'll say, well, I'm not really reading
0: any fantasy or science fiction anymore. Mm -hmm. And you say, that's great, because I want to know what you (laughs) really are. Well, I have to say the most hilarious one, I shouldn't say this because this is talking out of school, but I wanted to do a 10 minutes conversation with, and and I will, with Robert Shearman, author Uh of the insane project. Mm -hmm. Uh, we yeah. Tell Ourselves Stories in the Dark, the three-volume short story collection that's out from PS Publishing this month, I think, in theory, and to which, honest to God, you should go online to pspublishing.co.uk and consider ordering. But I said to him, I said, would you be willing? He said, I have to go and read something interesting first. I'll be right back. <laughs> and you're going, by definition, what you're doing is interesting. You just yeah, need to yeah, take yeah. a breath. I mean, the only thing that does come up from time to time, and I completely sympathize with it, is that sometimes people just aren't reading right now. It's just not a thing they can process in this time. Everybody's responding to this time differently. Some people are reading, writing, staring at a wall, digging up the garden and replanting it, whatever it might be and so for some people they're just not and that's just how it is no, i have no
1: i have no criticism at all for people who as, as several people said they're just scattered they're reading bits and pieces of things they're reading whatever they're reading cookbooks um or the read uh, ellen clay just was reading an ellery queen mystery but i think the one thing that does clear up is two things it helps clear up one is uh the term which i don't know whether i made it up or saw it online somewhere corona shaming the idea that If you've got all this time, you really ought to be reading the classic novels, whether it's, whether it's Proust or Hemingway or whether you've never read Stranger in a Strange Land, you owe it to yourself to read those. No, you don't. You don't owe it to yourself to read anything now. And I found, I've talked, I don't know if you have, but I've talked to nobody who is using the time to
0: improve themselves through reading the classics. Weirdly, I have. Really? I know people who are fired up Duolingo and are learning a second language. Uh, I, I mean, I must admit, I was amused that the one person I know who actually reads Proust, Christopher Rowe, who apparently uh-huh. alternates years where he reads, rereads Proust, reads something else each year in amongst his reading, which is kind of remarkable to me, but still, but is instead choosing to read Silver Age Marvel comics. Okay. And you're going, well, well, fair enough. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would feel like reading Proust right now either. No disrespect to Proust, who, you know, is fairly well respected. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you sort of to, to not to pivot completely because, you know, because it's in the space of what we're doing and it mm. speaks to where we're going. Are you, in addition to grabbing another glass of red wine, are I'm you actually, reading? Actually, so
1: you were being polite. I was grabbing the bottle, but I intend to pour it into a glass. <laughs> are you reading? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I mean, I'm I'm reading the things. Actually, right now I'm reading your dragon anthology. So I am continuing to read things um, for the column. And, and to some extent, it requires a little bit more effort at concentration. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. The other reading, uh, the other thing I do is I uh, will spend an hour uh, reading aloud to my partner, Stacy. And last night we read the first few chapters of the original Nineteen twenty or whenever it was, Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse, and part of the reason I wanted to do that is because if I read Jeeves, if I read the Jeeves stories, it was many decades ago, and now I'm looking at um, we were we were talking to um, K.J. Parker. Uh, I'm, you look at uh, KJ, you look at KJ Parker, and, and I think Joe Abercrombie, and certainly Neil Gaiman, and, and all the people, uh, and, and, and certainly Terry Pratchett for that matter. All the people who, in some sense, derive some of their use of language from, from Jeeves. So I wanted to see if it was there. I wanted to see if these – they're not fall-down hilarious, but there is that style that started with Woodhouse that you can see all over fantasy now. And I'd, I've been aware of that, but this is one of the things I think that happens when you do go back and read something that you know you'd read earlier – Uh, because you see it in the light of all the things you've read since you know i mean I, i i had an occasion several years ago and this is a short almost pointless anecdote but after i wrote my first book about science fiction back in literally 1979 i spent two years just loading myself with science fiction and i wanted to read anything but science fiction afterwards so i did i i I'd, I'd, I'd read nothing but science fiction for like three years writing this book. And then I decided I'm going to read the complete works of Ernest Hemingway, which I did. Um, and they were good. And I'd read some of them in high school, but a couple of years ago, I went back and looked at Hemingway and I thought Hemingway is really good at what he does, yeah. but what he caused to happen to American literature was not good. Um, <laughs> in other words, if you read Hemingway, knowing what you know now, rather than when you were younger reading Hemingway, um, it's It's a little bit awkward,
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the other hand, I was picking up you were you were mentioning Proust, so I'm sounding very highfalutin now. I picked up um a few weeks ago Virginia Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway, and that seems like a lot more important a book than it did when I was younger so so well, in the sense that you can see a kind of uh well partly because now that I know the Virginia Wolf was kind of an Olaf Stapleton fan, I'm looking for evidence of. Uh, of, of, of kind of cosmic perspectives in it. and it is there there's some of it there but then you realize probably the influences that uh, a writer like virginia Woolf has had over the decades have been positive i think she's people have not slavishly Im- imitated her the way writers all the way down to hard-boiled science fiction writers slavishly imitated hemingway i think hemingway had a bad effect on american writing because everybody wanted to sound like hemingway and you couldn't do it it's like everybody trying to do a bogart voice you can't do it <laughs> you know, bogart was the only one who could do that um, and Fair i think enough. the same thing's true it, it, people now uh i was talking to somebody on uh we did a little uh, uh zoom discussion with science fiction critics and alec neville Lee was there and on licea and uh, it was a lot of fun um and needless to say um Heinlein came up, and I think one of the things that I think comes out actually in Farah Mendelssohn's book about Heinlein is that reading him now, uh, you can't read him the way you would have read him when you were younger. And I think part of the problem, and we've talked about this on the podcast, that younger readers uh, in, encountering Heinlein or Asimov uh, for the first time, or probably even Arthur Clarke, uh, are seeing it through a lens of bad influences of, of 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 the of the worst of those writers being perpetuated by lesser writers.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's
1: probably fair.
0: I mean, I will say here in uh Merton Way, you know, I'm reading aloud for the first time in a long time. I'm reading to my eldest daughter and I'm reading her A Wizard of Earthsea. Excellent. Which I haven't read since I was 12 and which immediately betrays how skillful and gifted a writer Le Guin was because it's that rare text that you can read cold and read fluently aloud because Mm -hmm. it's all embedded and written and crafted into every line every drop of punctuation of that story which is quite brilliant I've also signed up for a online facebook conversation group just for something to in my spare time hmm. and largely they're they're, they're reading you know, books for the pandemic and their first which i didn't you know i wasn't part of was reading uh gabriel garcia marquez's love in the time of cholera which feels mm-hmm. like a bit of an easy choice at the moment yeah it does it seems but but next up is a book that i realized i've never read that's why, and this is why i've signed up and that's uh shirley jackson's we have always lived in the castle
1: I love that. I actually like that. I'm maybe the only one. I like that better than the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. And the reason I like it is the voice. Yeah, Mary Cat's voice is
0: one of the most haunting voices in literature. Yeah. So I'm going to read that for the first time in the next little while. I I had bought my Library of America copy of Shirley Jackson, so mm-hmm. I'm 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 all set for that. And the other thing that I read, I mean, I've actually been reading edi- editing work stuff as well, but. Uh, I just read a book called "The Winter of Frankie Machine" by Don Winslow. Just finished that a few days ago. And I
1: was the Winter reading of Fra-
0: about that? The Winter no, of Frankie Machine it. is a, a a crime thriller that was going to be a Robert De Niro Martin Scorsese project, but, ah. but they but they did The Irishman instead, which is ah. which actually, in the retrospect, I I kind of think I'm pretty happy with because. De Niro, when he was 60, would have been an astonishing choice to play Frankie Machine in many ways. Mm -hmm. But um, at 70-plus, being digitally reframed, I'm less convinced. Yeah. And the book, which is utterly compelling, though raises all kinds of moral questions in my mind, is the tale of an aging mafia hitman living retired in San Diego and gets drawn back into... uh, Mm -hmm. Well, he basically has to defend himself. It's one of these things where it spirals through time. It's kind of like, here's the character, uh, Frankie in the current day dealing with his problems. Here's how he became who he was in this corpse-screwing kind of timeline. Right. That's really well done. I enjoyed it greatly. But I, I also found myself sitting there going, we're reading a book. Told from the point of view of this Hitman character. So obviously sympathetic to this Hitman character that falls into this enormous class of books in our community where we empathize with and like objectively bad people. You know, uh, the, the, the protagonist of this book is a, he's a multiple murderer. He's a mafia yeah. Hitman. He's a bad man, right? And yet you like him. He's better than the men around him. He does some objectively good things.
1: Well, I immediately think of K.J. Parker's characters, yeah. who are not only awful characters. They tell us up front they're awful characters. And we admire them for knowing how awful they are. <laughs> and just be very open about it. And then you realize, as you say, the characters around them are at least as bad. And that, that I think that's... I think grimdark, I think that uh, that term about Joe Abercrombie is is misleading because the stuff is not grimdark at all. The stuff is self-aware. Yeah. They're self-aware, uh, morally compromised characters in worlds that more or less demand that. So it's, uh, um, I mean, it, 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 it's nothing new. I mean, um, Elmore Leonard has written stories in which there's not a single sympathetic character. Yeah. Um, but. You kind of have to pick somebody
0: involved. <laughs> and look, you know, if you were, I mean, Frankie Machine is a sympathetic character. You 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 feel for him, you know. He's retired. He's t- starts at the beginning of this thing. He's 20 odd years out of the business, has built a decent kind of life for himself, and it tries to be decent and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you sit there going, you know, like, and, and it all spirals out of control for reasons not his fault. Though it sits in his past, and you feel for him, and you're engaged, and you care about the other characters around him, it's, it's really well done. I recommend it, and I will read more Don Winslow. though am curious. Lord knows I have that. no time.
1: No, no, I, that's the problem. And I, I, I want it. I'd love to read that. I'd love to get back into looking at, um, at other genres besides the ones I have to look at because what you just described is also a classic Western plot. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's the plot of Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Absolutely, you know, it is. The retired yes. gunslinger who just can't escape his reputation absolutely um, absolutely interesting. and and, now, and it's it's surprising how uh, how seldom you see those plots being recycled in fantasy and i mean you,
0: you do to some extent yeah, I suppose. You do. Um, but um, uh, there's always older plots reused uh, in in hopefully interesting and new ways i mean Kate Elliott was talking about her forthcoming book today, Unconquerable Sun, which you you can listen to all the 10 minutes with, Mm. but is basically a gender-swapped Alexander the Great space opera. Uh And then studying World War II tactics to understand how you might build space battles in space opera. You know, Despite the fact that, to me, some of the most convincing ones I've heard don't follow those paradigms, nonetheless I can see why you would do it. So that's interesting. What I was going to say was, though, we are pretty much at the top of our hour now so we should probably wind up and I wanted to shout out to one particular person out there who I shan't name, who had sort of said, when are you gonna stop doing these 10 minute podcasts and just give us the long ones like I want to listen to (laughs) so, I mean, I realize if we were more technically adept, we would split the two uh, feeds into two separate podcasts and let everybody choose Mm. Uh, then they wouldn't have to download a 10 minute episode if they don't want them but we remain committed and resolved to keeping doing these episodes for the foreseeable future on the newly adopted time schedule one every two weeks. Now this is actually an episode that's actually late, so we'll probably mm-hmm. still do one next week to get back on schedule. but the intention is to do the 26 episodes a, uh, yeah, a week. And for the moment and correct me if you feel I'm wrong, the 10 minutes with are kind of a bit of a, a bit of a for the duration project they may go for another week another month another two months we don't know
1: i consider them appetizers i consider them uh, not not at all replacing these uh, episodes because we've also heard much to my astonishment there are people who prefer two of us talking rather than having guests yeah I can't there are f- other it. people who would prefer for us to just have the guests talk and keep quiet ourselves for an hour <laughs> The sense I have, and I think it's a sense I want to have, uh, both recording and listening to the 10-minute ones, I want them all to be an hour long. And I, I'm sure the same thing has happened to you. There's it's a couple of them, that yeah. After we stop recording, we chat about things, and I learn things that, I, that, that we simply could not have I – mean, the 10-minute, the, the, the 10 10-to-15, 10 okay, 10-to-17-minute window is very arbitrary, and it uh, makes it uh, difficult to bring in everything you want. On the other hand, I think our guests feel this is no commitment at all. They don't need to be... they well, don't Well, I, need I think it's manageable in
0: this friends. time. Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. It's manageable in this time. And I think it's manageable for everybody else. So I, don't, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have the time to, and you wouldn't have the time to particularly necessarily, but doing an hour-long episode every day would be too much. And it would be mm-hmm. way too much to inflict on the world, you know, really. Oh, yeah. You know, could you imagine having put out... <laughs> Four hundred hours of no, it would be dreadful. But look, we'll, we'll keep going. It'll be, it'll work itself through. I mean, I can see ways we might change this and evolve it, and maybe make it part of the long, the longer format in time. But, but this to, is such a to, weird time that it, know, it, it's a very weird
1: time. And you mentioned four hundred hours, which brings us back to our a point at which we began the whole podcast. We've done four hundred hours more. Uh, if you if you add the podcasts that went over an hour, some of them did. Uh, and the pod, and, and some of the podcasts that were literally, literally never no more than 10 minutes. Um, we've done that over a period of 10 years and no, I don't think either you or I or our listeners would want us to try to do that many in one
0: year. <laughs> no, but I, I have to say sort of that, you know, here at the end of, of this episode, of episode 400, first of all, thank you to everybody who has listened to the episodes because lord knows you know like just just hats off to you um and never mind having listened to all of them and i know there are some people out there who have done that and sincere really sincere thanks to the 155 i believe it is people Mm -hmm. who made time to join us on the podcast i think that's a remarkably kind and generous thing to do and i think we're both deeply grateful to them And thank you to you as well. I mean, sincerely for, for being here for 10 years to do this. And you know, for however long it continues to trickle along. Thanks for the
1: idea. I mean, it's something I would never have thought of 10 years ago. Now podcasts are a big thing, but 10 years ago, it was like silent films were turning into sound. It was (laughs) the beginning of the podcast era and and we were there. And we,
0: and we still sound that way. Well, on that cheery note, thank you, and I guess I'll talk to you in a week. All right, I will
1: talk to you in another week. And meanwhile, I have some points. I'll post this somewhere: a list of all 159 guests we've had in the ten years. Sounds period. like a great thing. Okay, thank you. Talk to you next week, and. T-